Thank you. Welcome to the Blind Stigma Podcast. So our guest today is Rashawn Miller. So he is a very, very interesting man. So with a life and career dedicated to assisting others with mental health challenges, Rashawn serves the community and the world as an award-winning therapist, author, and social entrepreneur. He uses his personal experience living with bipolar disorder and surviving multiple suicide attempts to educate others, break the stigma, and create change in the mental health field. This man is power. Very powerful. His story is one of trial, triumph, overcoming, and using his pain Mm -hmm. for an ultimate purpose. And to hear that somebody in the, in our, in our black community suffering from bipolar um, is, is definitely something that we don't talk about a lot in our our community, but a lot of the symptoms that are connected with bipolar disorder, the ups, the downs, the, Mm. the mania and the depression, um, the highs and lows. It is an absolutely debilitating, um, disorder and it causes so much havoc. Um, especially when you don't know exactly exactly what's what is happening, what's going on with you. Thank you. And the despair that is attached to it, because I think by some people think that bipolar is just, you know, the depressed mood. And then, you know, when you have your bouts of, of mania or mm-hmm. euphoria, but some people, everyone's, uh, everyone's depression and anxiety and, and, um, mania manifests slightly differently. So, you know, for him to speak about, you know, his experience, yes, his experiences of, of paranoia and hearing voices and multiple attempts of suicide, suicide. Um, and how he was able to navigate through that still is on his journey, mm. but still has the, the ability not only to speak on it, but then to use his pain as a healing agent. Absolutely. You know, I, you know, I love me some quotes and <laughs> yes. And if you didn't know that now, you know, right. <laughs> I, 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 there was this quote that I, I used to see all the time and it says, it's something about using the bricks that life is strewn, thrown at you to, to build who you are. Yes. Or to build your empire, to right. build who you are. Yes. And I think Rashawn's story, story kind of embodies that because with each knockdown, he got back up and he used whatever that was thrown at him and is building, not just for himself, but for the community. Not only is he an, an incredible and powerful young man that is, that is going out there and doing the work he is serving as well. And he knows that his, his job as an advocate and as a therapist comes with a responsibility mm. and a responsibly responsibility that he's using very wise wisely and is holding this in such an honorable position. And he's going out there and he's, and he's healing, healing the community as much as he can. And, and that is, that is so 
admirable as an advocate myself to see the steps that he has taken it's it's inspiring and it's and i admire that Mm -hmm. so much and i know that our listeners are really going to hear a lot of value Mm -hmm. from his story so i know that um you guys are going to enjoy this absolutely Welcome to the Blind Stigma Podcast with your hosts, Stacey Ann Buchanan and Dr. Natasha Williams. This podcast aims to provide a safe space that explores mental health within the Black community, breaks down the stigmas attached while taking back our narratives. We're going to go right into the interview and Sean, and we're going to ask you to please tell us your story. So I guess I would start with the fact that I was um, diagnosed with bipolar disorder back in 2006. I was a, my sophomore year in college. Um, I was actually at UNC Chapel Hill. And um, it was something that terrified me for a number of different reasons. Uh, for one, when I was diagnosed, I was actually in the hospital um, in the psychiatric ward. And I had been there for a good little bit. But um the reason why I was taken there is because my family noticed something that was going on different with me. And, um, it was, and specifically it was my mother, uh, just because I'm an only child. So I used to talk to my mom every day and she could just notice something that was different within my voice on over the phone. And so she kept asking me, baby, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? And I would tell her that, uh, nothing was going on. Uh, just because, at the time, I didn't know, I didn't understand what was going on myself. And then also, I didn't know how to put it into words. So uh, my mother ended up sending one of my cousins who I uh, went to a nearby college over to check in on me. And when my cousin saw me, all she could do was cry because I wasn't the Sean that she knew. Um, we actually grew up together and we, um, were only, we were only five months apart. So she was more like a sister than a, than a cousin. And when she saw me, uh, my hair was all over the place. I was super skinny because I lost about 25 pounds over a matter of six weeks. Oh. Um, I'm pretty sure I didn't smell too well because I wasn't taking a bath or, you know, didn't care about my hygiene. All I did, all I was doing was sitting in my dorm room. And um, so when my cousin saw me, she, she actually called my mom and my mom said, get him out of there. And when my mom, uh, when they when she told me when she told her to get me out of there, she took me to her apartment and a couple of hours later, my mom and the rest of my family ended up showing up and they kept asking me the question, What's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? Why why do you look like this? And you know, what's going on? And I kept trying to say nothing, nothing, I'm fine. And um they was like, Well, okay, if you don't want to talk to us, we will um take you somewhere where you can get the help you need. And so they literally drugged me to the hospital and that's how I ended up in the hospital. Um, but then also when I got pulled into the hospital, I ended up punching the nurse because um, I went kicking and screaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, as you can imagine, most people don't want to um, go to a psychiatric ward. But then also with that, um, I had this perception of myself and that I shouldn't be the one that, that's going there. Uh, just because um, even going back to my upbringing, I, I grew up in a very small town and uh, Lewiston, North Carolina, uh, very rural. And uh, actually, it's so small that I actually refer to it by Bertie County whenever I went to school because no one would have known where the town was. And then even when I said Bertie, they still didn't even know where the county was. 
So I uh, grew up a uh, small rural area, but I uh, played sports all throughout my um, just, um, school, school age years, played basketball, football, and ran track. Uh, was, I excelled there. I was all state in track for a number of years, but then also uh, was all region in football. Um, but then along with that, I, um, I did well in school, too. So graduated near the top of my class and then um, ended up receiving an academic scholarship to uh, college. And when I got there, I decided I still wanted to pursue an athletic career and walked on to the football team and the track team there. So I had a lot of success in my life. When you deal with a success with, with uh, not saying I didn't have any hardships at all, but the success outweighed those things, you have this inflated sense of self. And um, you get caught up into the, this is how I should be, and this can't happen to me. And so that's something that, that happened when I, was, when I was actually in the hospital, and it was uh, surreal for me to be there in that position. And um, it, for one, dealing with um, my symptoms, one of my main symptoms was uh, uh, psychosis, so I was hearing voices at the time. So uh, dealing with that, but then also being afraid to tell someone what I was actually dealing with, because not only did I have an inflated sense of self, uh, other people would help me on a pedestal as well to a certain degree. So um, I couldn't be the one to actually just, you know, really tell someone what was going on because I didn't want them to consider me crazy. Right, right. Um, so, you know, going through all of that, uh, when I received the diagnosis, uh, well, for one, when I was in the hospital, uh, nobody in the hospital looked like me. So I was terrified. <laughs> um, just because uh, we, I grew up, like I said, I grew up in the South. And um, I understand the, the dynamics of race. Yes. Uh, when it comes down to black and white in, in the United States. And I've, I've, I've been taught this by my parents, by my family, all of these things that ways to protect ourselves and ways that we have been utilized. We've been used throughout uh, history yes. as something less than a person. Uh, so when you go to a doctor's office, you know, it's, it's kind of hard. When you go to the hospital, it's kind of hard to trust individuals in there that don't look like you, and especially when it comes down to the topic of mental health, oh, yeah. because that's Absolutely. not something that we talk about anyway. Right. So, um, yeah, so I was I was terrified. Uh, and then, you know, when they tell me that I received this diagnosis, it, honestly, it goes in one ear and out the other. I'm just looking at them like, yo, what I need to do to get out of here? <laughs> that's right. That's that's the only thing I worried about, um, and so um, they gave me the diagnosis. Uh, they really didn't explain what it actually meant to me. But then, honestly, I wasn't even trying to hear what they were gonna say anyway because I was just like, whatever it is, I'm gonna I'm gonna put on this role so I can get out of here and then get back to my life. Right. And when they when I ended up getting out of the hospital, they told me that um, that I couldn't go back to school because school was a big stressor for me at a particular time. Which was which was cool, but I know I didn't want to go back home because I knew that I was from a very small town, and you know, like I said, people had this um, this vision of who I was and what I was supposed to be and become. Uh, I couldn't go back to school in the middle of a school year where I was supposed to have been, you know, in college because people would ask a bunch of questions and asking why were you here and all of this, so what's going on. So luckily for me, I had an uncle that lived in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I ended up moving with him. And when I moved with him, um, ended up coming in contact with a Dr. Kendall Jasper, 
who's a clinical psychologist, and he started to actually provide my treatment when it came down to uh, therapy, but then also introduced me to a psychiatrist who could uh, put me on medication. And one of the things with Dr. Jasper was the fact that, uh, for one, he looked like me, uh, but then he talked like me, and even he dressed like me. Because when I first went to his office, um, when I first went to his office, he had on a t-shirt, some some balling shorts, and some jays. Okay. And I'm looking at him like, <laughs> I'm looking right. at him like, bro, you you are you 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 sure you're a doctor? <laughs> because that's not that's not a perception that we receive, um, whether it be from the media or um, you know just movies or any of those types of things, or even in our own in our own community, well, we don't see black true. males dressed like that considered them doctors, you know? So Did that that actually help you in terms of uh, being able to engage with the psychologist? Or did that sort of... Oh, okay, because I was going to ask you if it sort of increased your suspicion of the the doctor. I'm thinking the opposite, but for some people it's like, okay, no, this person can't be a a real doctor. Forget this. I don't want to listen to anything they have to say. Oh no! It definitely made it. It definitely made it more um, easier for me to talk to him because, I, like I said, I just came from the hospital and everybody in there was white. I'm not talking to them. So like, yo, like, so yeah, I was I was cool with it. You okay. know, I was, you know, I I I was at a point where I was ready for help, okay. uh, but I wanted it from a from a, from a specific uh, person, right? And um. And this is what I needed. I needed to be able to talk to somebody that I can have that communication with without verbally or always having to verbalize it. Right, right. And because he has some... I'm sorry, go ahead. No, 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 sorry. My my apologies. I actually cut you off. Can you please continue? Oh. No, because of the fact that um, although he may not have experienced, you know, being in the hospital or the psychosis or any of those other symptoms that was... Uh, that was attributed to my diagnosis. I know what he like. He knows what it's like to live in this country as a black man. Okay. Yes, yes. absolutely. Yes. So you don't have to explain yourself or explain your experience um, in terms right. of how you walk day to day as a black man. Uh, the question. Right. I, yeah. The question I was going to ask you was. Um, so the diagnosis you received at the hospital was bipolar disorder. Am I correct? Correct. Okay. So when you received that diagnosis, um, and especially coming from people that don't look like you, I'm trying to get an understanding of the transition between receiving that diagnosis at the hospital to getting to a place where, you know, you see a, a clinical psychologist that looks like you and then being able to accept um, the help. Um, so during that transition period, it, honestly, that the only the only way my mom was going to let me move to Charlotte instead of going home and being being up under her watchful eye oh, was oh, if I agreed to go to a doctor. Oh shoot! And okay. luckily, and luckily for me, my uh, my uncle knew someone, so it was so Doctor Jasper was a friend of my uncle's. Oh, so I see. it was that network, yeah. Okay, that also helped with that. Uh, if it honestly, if it was left up to me to do it on my own after I got out of the hospital, club, I probably wouldn't have done it. Mm. Because I think you know, I guess what I wanted us, I wanted the listeners to sort of hear and understand is is that you know, receiving that diagnosis is one thing, but if there's not even an 
inch of of having the ability to accept the diagnosis mm -hmm. so that you can be in a space to actually receive, be open enough to receive the treatment because you cannot force psychotherapy on somebody because psychotherapy what? is a, is a, is a relationship that have that both have to be in, engaged in to actually mm -hmm. work. So there, there had to be some level of, um, you know, of, of acceptance of some sort. Now, mind you, it, it sounds like your mother had quite a bit of influence, <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> on, on the decision, but you know, there, there, there had to have been something. So I just wanted to, I mean, and I thank you for that explanation because I think it's important that, you know, you know, we have that difficulty in terms of the, the mental health system and people not looking like us and the skepticism mm -hmm. that is connected with that, um, is, is, is very real. And to, uh, to, to, uh, to, piggyback on what you had said um our community has been used you know research wise you know as guinea pigs mm -hmm. for such a long period of time and when you understand that history the skepticism that is connected with that in terms of even wanting to receive help is huge so i thank you mm -hmm. for, i thank you for for you know discussing that because a lot of times in our community people don't understand where the skepticism is coming from or the reluctance to to seek treatment but going to a place where nobody looks like you and you know a lot of times people that look like them have treated our community as subhuman um, mm -hmm. you know, this is where, you know, the, the difficulty lies in, in even uh, addressing our mental health issues, but also on top of that, being able to even accept that, you know, there, that we do suffer from mental illness as well, and we are also deserving of the help. Definitely, definitely. And I think to, to go back to your question earlier about what uh, Kendall had on, um, I think that for some people that may, that may have been skeptical for some, but then honestly, if Kendall had on a suit and tie, uh, I probably would have been more skeptical of him then right. than him having on basketball shorts and a t-shirt right. because, um, because of the fact that not, it wasn't just the dress, but then also it's his demeanor mm -hmm. and his demeanor came off as authentic. Right. Um, and if he's in a certain time, I'm, uh, I'm looking at him side. I'm be like, yo, are you working for the man or, or are you with us or what? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like what, what team you on? You know, are you, are you on right, our side? Right, right. Or are, are you, you, are you playing with the master? <laughs> right. So I'm, 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 fit. I'm, I'm more skeptical when you come in with a suit and tie on. So I'm like, ah. yeah, yeah. Right. So. Oh, so like that's those are the things that run through my head. But then, um, like I said, when I met him, it was it was great. It was it was a, I was able to really um, uncover a lot of things, but then learn some stuff about myself. But honestly, that wasn't just the. Um, although I, I I sought the help and I got what I needed, and I got on the right medication through just different trials and stuff. That's another thing people have to understand that there is no uh, one quick hitter fix or anything or no exact science to this, especially the medication piece. Right. Um, so I had to go through different trials to figure out what what worked best for me. 
and then being open and honest with my therapist and with my psychiatrist about how it made me feel. Um, so, but then even when I did that and I got to a point where I was stable, um, I was like, all right, cool. I want to go back to school. Uh, you know, but then also in my head, when I go back to school, I was like, yo, I'm, I'm leaving all this other stuff behind. I'm okay. I'm cured from this. I don't need you no more. I don't need meds no more. When I go back to school, because mind you too, when I was, when I left school, I didn't tell anybody I was leaving and I never told anybody why I was leaving. Uh, in addition to that, I turned off my cell phone for like six months. So people couldn't even get in contact with me, uh, whether it was my roommates or anything. And then the only people that knew where I was, was my close family. The ones that took me to the hospital. And I asked them not to say anything to anyone because of the fact of just the, I didn't want people to know that I was in the hospital for what I was in the hospital for. Um, but then when I, when I get back to, to college, and uh, my symptoms ended up coming back. But of course, when my symptoms come back this time, I didn't, I didn't go back to therapy. I didn't get back on medication. I started to self-medicate, um, especially in the environment for like college. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's glorified or it's uh, socially acceptable to do drugs and uh, drink alcohol and be promiscuous and all of those types of things because it's kind of an expectation um, or unwritten law mm-hmm. for, for college students. And so I started to self-medicate with alcohol and I was going through a fifth of tequila every other day. And I did that for over three years. My goodness. So I would, I would wake up in the morning and drink and drink throughout the entire day, whether I was going to class or I was working. It really didn't matter. I always had alcohol on. And, um, yeah, so do And so I would do that. And again, nobody really knew that I had a diagnosis or whatever I had going on. And, um, through these times, I, I, I was struggling uh, internally and actually ended up uh, attempting suicide three times. Uh, the first two times I attempted to overdose on pills, and then the last time I put a gun in my head and pulled the trigger and it jammed on me. Oh, my wow. goodness. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, so that was, I, I can honestly say that was the lowest point of my life. Right. Because of the fact that you you have a lot of negative self talk uh, when you're when you're in a you know in a state of depression um, in that cycle, but then also with that I'm hearing voices um, as well, and the voices are, are are beating me up and telling me that I shouldn't be here and you know that I'm worthless and all these other things, and and then when you 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 get the balls enough to to attempt suicide not one, not two, but three times and you still fail. That, um, I couldn't wrap my mind around it. Why? And so I just, all I could do is just sit there and cry. But that also led me to the point of where I was like, okay, well you tried it this way. And then I had to do some reflection on, well, what helped you in the past? It wasn't the alcohol. It wasn't any of the other activities that you was engaging in. I, I, I would experiment with various drugs and all of that stuff, trying to numb the pain, the emotional pain. So, like, none of that stuff worked. And so I had to um, go back to, like, really look at what helped me. And that was actually going to therapy and then going to uh, getting, you know, medication regimen. And so when I when I went back to it this time and I got became stable, I um, I really started to look at things completely different, just because I've been 
on that side. Like I said, I've been in the hospital. I've, I've been, you know, attempted suicide and all of these things. But then I really started to pay attention to my loved ones, and especially like my roommates and stuff and my friends that I hung around. And I started to notice that, man, they were doing some of the same things that I was doing when it comes down to uh, self-medicating. But a lot, but we wouldn't call it self-medicating because it's socially acceptable, or we just write it off as just that, that, that person. Uh, my, my roommate, man, he would he would smoke so much weed in a day, and I was like, "Yo, I don't see how you even functioning." <laughs> and then he was like, "Yo, I just I just needed to get through my day." Oh my goodness! And so, yeah. and so that's something that helped spark the conversation for me. Oh is that I started to notice it in them. And then I was like, I wanted them to get the help that I got. But mind you, I, from my last suicide attempt to my hospitalization was over a span of like seven years. And no okay. one knew this diagnosis that I was carrying around with me or this, this, this aspect of my life that I fought on a daily basis. Right. So right. I... um. I wanted I wanted them to get help, but I didn't know how to really even talk about it. So this is, I mean, it was I don't know. One day we just I asked him. I was like, "Yo, bro, what's wrong?" He was like, "What you mean?" I was like, "Yo, what's going on with you smoking a lot? You knew, like I see you go through weed like it's nothing or whatever." And he's like, "Nah, I'm good." And I was like, "No," I was like, "I was like, yo, I want to let you know that you can talk to me about whatever you got going on." He's like, "Nah, I'm good." I'm like, you know, this is just what I do. And so that's what led me. I was like, yo, you remember I used to, I used to drink a whole lot. And he was like, yeah. He was like, I, I know you always had liquor because they would drink with me at okay. times. They wouldn't drink all day, every day, but they knew I always had liquor. And so, um, and I had to tell him why I was drinking. So I told him about the voice. I told him about the suicide attempts. And his very first response to me was, was like, bro, why you ain't tell me? And... My response to him was like, yo, if I would have told you, what would you have done? Because a lot of times we don't know how our people are going to react. Or we've, we've heard, um, even when around your loved ones and stuff, you've heard about people talk about other people like in a downward way, That's whether right. it be, oh, that person's crazy or don't mess exactly. with them because That's of this and the third. That, the you know, all of that, all of that, that talk that, that surrounds the stigma that goes with mental health and the mystique that's around it because right. a lot of people just don't know that's right uh so that's what keeps individuals from not saying anything absolutely and, and also the so, shame too Rashawn is also the shame too sorry? it's the shame too that keeps us from not expressing right so right. it's like you, you right. say what's going on and exactly what you said too the language the language that's there and the shame of that agreed absolutely. yes absolutely absolutely and so I was just like, and so I told him, and um, he was just like, bro, I've been dealing with some of the same stuff. Oh, my goodness. No. So, I mean, it's interesting to that you just said that because, you know, with you being able to oh, be open enough to say what you were going through, it's almost like it's provided a safe space for him to say, well, if he's, you know, brave enough to actually say this and, and I'm not judging him, so I can now actually reciprocate that and um and be able to share what's going on with me so you know that i think that exchange ends up being so highly important um you know especially for the both of you you know for you yourself and your roommate and especially hearing it from you Definitely. and it's like you're you're not homeless you're not on the street haggard you're not the 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 quote-unquote stigmas that we usually that we attach associate to, exactly right that we associate with exactly so people are like, 
you have it too. Okay. So it, it opens up. It's like, wow, I can talk about this. I'm right. not alone. Right. 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 I think, you know, and so that sorry, yeah, go ahead. I was go just ahead. Go, sorry. I, so no problem. I was just going to, to ask you about, I mean, I, and I think this is where you're going anyhow, but it's, it's sort of, you know, as you're explaining your journey, it, I would love for our listeners to really understand in terms of, you know, how you've now turned this around or how you're dealing with it. And where are you now in your journey? Oh man. Um, for one, the journey never stops. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Thank and you for that. It never. It's a never-ending journey, and I learned that from you know my first bout with treatment, and then understand that I thought I was cured when I you know relapsed hard uh, for years. So I understand that I'm always going to have to adjust. Um, but then also. What really allowed me to take control of my journey is for me to accept the fact that I live with bipolar one disorder and the simple fact that it's not, it doesn't make who I am. It's just a part of me. And it just, it informs me on how I need to structure my day, how I need to structure who I be around, how how I structure what I consume, Um, whether that's. Uh, social media, TV, uh, who I talk to, conversations, food that I consume, any of those things. It, this, this is what this label of bipolar disorder informs me. Um, and I had to accept that. Right. Uh, once I started to accept that, that's when I really started to learn who Rashawn is. Um, what things piss Rashawn off? What things do, do Rashawn really like to do? Um, what thing, what food, allow me to have great days, what, what foods uh, lead to me going into those downward spirals. So, like, all of these things, it, it led me to the point of when I wanted to research myself and learn who I can be, who can I be when I do things the way I need to do them and be the best me possible. Okay. Um, but then also with that, it led me to understand that there is a huge gap in our community when mm. it comes down to talking about this. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I'm sorry. No, no I just we're we were we're you. agreeing with we're you. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's it's a huge gap, and so with this gap, um, I understand that I can't wait for somebody else to fix it. Because a lot of times we we'll sit around and complain, well, we need this and we need that, and if we sit in there waiting for somebody else to do it, it may or may not come. But if I if I take the reins myself and do it and at least try. I understand that I can at least put an effort to it instead of just throwing out a bunch of negativity out there with no solutions. So that's when um, my, it actually from from my journey as far as an advocate uh, started um, at, with a blog. And so I would write, I wrote my blog, but at first I wouldn't put my name to it, and then um, and then it led to me actually starting my my nonprofit where I, I do mental health awareness. But then also with that, I wanted to not only, I, I, I shared my story to inspire others, but then also I didn't want to just inspire people. Uh, so I went and got my master's degree in uh, clinical mental health counseling. Oh, and I'm a licensed, yeah, I'm a licensed therapist. Congratulations. And, oh, thank you. And I'm, and I'm pursuing my PhD in uh, international psychology. Hello. So I have Hello. a year left on that. All right. Back. All right. Amazing. Wow. Thank you. 
And so I want I understand like it's important for us to share our stories, yes. But then I also we need a lot more providers out here as well, and especially providers that look and talk like me, That's because I know it. what the one I know what the one that looked and talked like me did for me. Right. Yes. So I I need to be that person as well. Mm-hmm. I, I I live by the motto now. I said, be who you needed when you were younger. Oh, and oh, I know yes. what I needed when I was younger. So that's why I'm fulfilling that role now. Oh my goodness! You should see us in the studio. Stacy Ann and I have like the. <laughs> Biggest smiles on our faces. We're literally having like a praise moment. Yeah, I wanted you know? to start clapping, but I'm like, I don't know how that's going to sound. And, you know, we're pretty- we're, oh, my goodness. The excitement is because you are exactly right. We need more of us in the profession. Um, you know, in several roles. I mean, for myself, you know, being a clinical psychologist but then also mm-hmm. not many of us up here, we're in Toronto, um, and you know, not seeing many of us um, in the profession can be disheartening. Absolutely. And especially when you have people in the community that want to reach out, but you know, have difficulty or skepticism even reaching out because there's not a lot of us that look that and look it like understand. us. And thank you. Because there's un- so many factors when it comes to living with depression, anxiety, like with mental illness. There's so many factors where you live can affect that. How you were raised, exactly. you know, right. cultural background, you know, ethnic considerations. There's so many things, so, so many, many factors that if you're not from the community, a lot of times those are missed. Right, because the, mm-hmm. the training the training is so westernized that they do not understand how culture, how ethnicity, you know, how our upbringing, you know, really becomes a part of how we express ourselves, wh- what we do, and you know, and how we do it. And a lot of people don't realize that. So, you know, we are in the studio here just excited I, because. I am ins- I, Yes, because we need we need more of us in the field because our community is hurting. So, you know, I'm excited, you know, get get your paper, get your paper. And our our community needs healing, healing, you know, definitely. Wow. I I could go into this. I'm I'm just so, so, so so inspired by your journey Rashawn. can you tell us how how we can change the stigma oh man um for one it, it could be just as simple as changing our communication and, our, and the way we talk about mental health uh in oh, general sure. like i i all i'm constantly checking on uh i'm 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 checking my friends when they use the word crazy. Like I, yes. they, they already know not to say it around because it's, it's conditioning. Mm-hmm. And I know we use it so loosely, in it, but I'm, they all, but they know why I don't like the word. And so checking them on that to making them more conscious of, you know, the words that they're putting out here in the world, uh, whenever they're talking about anyone, but then also, um, us being, being able to be vulnerable with someone, period. Like it doesn't have, you don't have to write blogs or do anything on social media or none of that stuff. Find one person that you can be vulnerable with to share that you are going through a certain struggle. And that allows that person to be vulnerable with you That's right. or do it within your circles. And then you will be amazed at how 
that ripple effect will, will, will start to impact the way we view mental health, but then also the way it's actually treated. Right. Um, because I mean, it, you, if you see now it's a lot, a lot of talk about it in the media, a whole lot of talk about, um, you know, people just sharing their stories and I love it. But then also, like I said, I understand my, I, I have a responsibility not only to myself, but then also to the people, to the audience that I'm speaking with, I know if I'm sharing my story, it's going to evict a lot of emotions with a lot of emotions with you. So I also have the responsibility that I need to, for one, either be able to provide that help that you need or direct you to the services that can actually give you the help that you actually need. That's it. That's it. You know, I, I think a lot of people don't um, or maybe do not appreciate or don't necessarily understand sort of the weight of that responsibility. Um, you know, a lot of times, you know, people will will, you know, get their degree, get their profession or whatever and think that it's just them and that's it. And I think especially with, with, with mental health, mental illness, and how it impacts our black community, you know, to have people that are rising above, that are, you know, are willing to sort of, you know, take the torch and say, listen, um, you know, this is a community issue, a community problem that needs a community intervention. Um, so, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I thoroughly appreciate what you've uh, what you've just said and and understanding the weight of that responsibility because i i think um a lot of people don't recognize that weight oh definitely i don't i don't think so as well i think it you know sometimes like i said the the advocacy is great but then also i understand that a lot of people out here just need help period too and it, it's good to build that sense of community but then also what resources are we plugging into this community that's right that's um true. and that's why the way that I do some of my work, like even as a therapist, you know, some some of my some of my uh, colleagues may not agree with the way I provide therapy, mm-hmm. um, just because it's not the traditional. We sit in the office and uh, you sit on the couch, right? And I ask you, well, tell me what's wrong with you, and, and what how is your day going? I can't do I, I can do that with some of my clients. I can't do that with most of my clients. Uh, let's see, ninety five ninety five percent of my clientele are black males, right? And uh, ranging, the youngest is what five, and the oldest oh. I have is like seventy-two. Okay. Wow. So, um, when I'm working with my kids, I'm, I'm I do therapy with the PlayStation, or I, I go to right. the gym with them, or you know, go to the park and give. Yes. I reach them on their level and reach them on activities that they like to enjoy, and I still can take that quote-unquote evidence-based practice mm-hmm. and flip it into something that that my kids are going to enjoy, and I'm gonna still get what I need to get out of it. That's it. That's it. And I mean, I, and I appreciate what you just said there because a lot of times, as a clinician, we do talk about what we call evidence-based practice. Um, and, and for our our listeners, um, you know, who may not sort of understand that terminology. Uh, when we talk about evidence-based practice, a lot of it is is that um, these certain um, ways that we do psychotherapy, for example, like a cognitive behavioral therapy, it has gone through rigorous trials, and there's certain criteria mm-hmm. that that therapy has, that modality has to meet to be called evidence-based. Mm-hmm. But what we also do have to understand is if we take a step back and understand where does that evidence come from, how was that evidence uh, accumulated? Um, we understand that it's a westernized phenomenon. It's something that where the evidence mm-hmm. has the evidence has been 
um, you know, collated, uh, you know, within a Western and within a Westernized dynamic and primarily with a Caucasian community. So, yes, the, you mm -hmm. know, it's evidence based in, in regards to their practices and how they see therapy. But we have to understand that it's not a one size fits all model. And then also, you know, there are other ways to um, elicit healing that you know, A may not be evidence-based. I mean, I look at Afrocentric principles and, and, and dynamics and African psychology and how that has, you know, how, you know, psychology is just not a European thing, right, as mm -hmm. an example. So it's going into the community to heal the community. So it's not just about, you're right, the two-chair or the, or the couch phenomenon. It's, you know, it's going into the community to elicit that healing as well and looking at several different ways to uh to to make sure that we can elicit that healing so um i appreciate that you said that i just wanted to let our listeners know when we talk about evidence base um what does uh, what does that mean or what does that look like from a clinical vantage point so and, and to the listeners uh to piggyback off of what dr williams just, just said i want you to think about it like this when they when they say evidence-based stuff a lot of times um, you know, they're going to get people that look like them and that's going to be open to talking about these issues, especially when it comes down to mental health. Right. Think about the individuals who have traditionally used mental health practices. A lot of, when I was growing up, my mom and my, my family would tell me therapy is for rich white folks. Right. Mm. That's it. And so think about that. It's a, it was a, it's a privilege to go to therapy. Mm. So when even so even when you um, it, it wasn't seen as a necessity. Right. So the people that they are doing these research practices on and these evidence based practices on these were privileged individuals. And so we didn't always have that privilege. But then also when it came if they wanted to do those trials on us, what black person do you know is going to uh, actively participate in it? That's right. That's right. So the evidence is not is not um is not collated on our community. Um, you not know, at all. Not at all. I mean, we've had a trial up here in Toronto where we've um, tried to look at um, what we call uh, CACBT, which is a culturally adaptive cognitive behavioral therapy for the Caribbean community. Um, but mm -hmm. um, again, you know, there's reluctance in terms of, you know, being able to elicit participation in those kinds of research dynamics. And, and yes, the research was done, was conducted in 2011, but at the at the same time you know there was still um there were still issues with the research you know as well um and i won't get into too much detail but you know from what you're saying is is absolutely absolutely right so i think go ahead yeah. i know i know <laughs> I'm, I'm listening to you guys talk and i'm just taking everything in what came to mind with your practice Rashawn, and how you're doing it it just made me reflect back to when you first met your therapist and how he was wearing mm -hmm. some J's and some basketball shorts and it just made you feel at ease. So I feel like you're kind of doing the same thing with your patients too, with the different methods of how you use. So like, like you said, with the children, right? So different mm -hmm. ways that you can, you can, you can work with them with therapies just to, it's just to make them feel at ease and just, and just listen to both you and Dr. Natasha talk. I'm like, wow. I like that because when you think about therapy, you, like you said, you think about the chair, you sit in an office and, and that's how you're speaking with, and that's how you're speaking with your therapist, you know? So I right, appreciate, right, I appreciate right. the different, the different methods and 
Yeah, I I also wanted to I also wanted to ask you. This is a segment I like to call the fun question part. I mean, everything mm-hmm. is beautiful, but I wanted to know if you could sum up your journey and your continuous journey, and you can sum it up with one word. What would that one word be? Ordered. Ordered. My steps have been ordered. Oh, oh my oh. goodness. <laughs> that hit me like a ton of bricks. I know. It was just like, <laughs> you know when you get hit? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're down and then you have to like stabilize. Oh, God. Ooh, <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. That got me good. Elaborate on that for me, yeah. please. Yes, oh my goodness. For our guest. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like. So, and I, I say it's ordered because of the fact that I feel like God put me in a position to experience certain things so that I can come out on top to be able to help others. Oh my God. And I'm not ashamed to help others and give a voice to people that, that may not necessarily know how to speak on certain things. But then also with that, I look at it a lot of times too. I tell people, I've been on both sides of the couch. Yes. And so I need to bridge that gap. Oh. That makes oh my and so I'm, I'm constantly coming up with, with new ways to not only provide treatment, but then also to raise awareness and give people the skill set. So that's why I do the adult coloring night. So it's, it's not just about, you know, uh, building a network of people to just come out and color and introduce that self-care to them. It's also raising that awareness and allowing people to see that this stigma, the stigma, we can break the stigma down just by, just by individuals showing up. If they know it's a mental health event, they know if I'm hosting anything, it's a mental health event. Mm-hmm. But if people are showing up to this event, you can see the support there and see just the people in the room. And that can help somebody else to be able to vocalize their needs when it comes down to Absolutely. certain things. So they see that the community is coming out to support. Absolutely. Good. Wow. So, yeah, I believe everything that I've been through, everything that I'm doing now, everything that I'm going to do in the future is ordered. Amen. Ordered. I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. Ordered. Ordered. Yes. I, I'm, I'm absolutely loving it. It's funny. You hear that word all the time. Or you see that word all the time. But hearing it in your context and you sharing that as the word that would describe your journey, it is, I'm not looking at that word as a whole different, as a whole different meaning. Mm. It's just powerful. It was so powerful. Like it literally, oh, I couldn't wait. even say anything. No, no, no. I took I'm a hit. I'm just like. I was just like, oh. <laughs> like, I, I, like really yeah. we're looking at each other yeah. and they literally have nothing to say it's just like oh wow so Rashawn thank you thank you thank so you. much for man no you, problem for, I appreciate you all just having me on your platform oh, and then just, that's the work that you all are doing too I gotta make it up to Toronto Yes. All of this stuff is- yes. <laughs> we need to connect. Yes. Oh, absolutely. The I, invitation is open for you to come up to Toronto, please. I just have to say, I yes. am, I am truly, truly inspired by your journey. Truly. Thank you. The work that you're doing, it's, it's inspiring. Like I'm sitting here and I'm like, yo, I'm, I'm a mental health advocate. I do a film and now I'm doing this podcast with you. There's work to be done. Oh, there is. I have a work. There is work to do. There is, work, work, yeah, there to is work to do. There's so. still work to be oh, done. Oh, no, absolutely. Rashawn, I thank you because I think that our listeners are going to be so inspired 
by what you are doing and how you are doing it. So I just want to say not only just thank you, but please keep on doing what you're doing. You've inspired both Stacey Ann and I to keep yes. on doing the work and that this work goes across borders. Like it doesn't matter that we're here in Toronto and, and you where you are that you know this this transcends borders and there's a community a large community that needs what we are doing so i thank you i agree i absolutely thank you so much for taking the time to be on the blind stigma podcast and to share your story with us so thank you Rashawn, just uh, thank we, you for sharing. Yes. I really appreciate it. Can you please let us uh, let the audience know where they can find you? Yes, all your social media handles, what whatever it is, oh, we, we man. need to know. My thing. So for me, if you can spell my name, you can find me. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so, I, I use my, my first name for everything, like so. Even my my website, my Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all of that is my first name. It's R W E N. S H A U N. I'm the only one in the world with a name spelled like this. So, <laughs> okay. uh, so all of your platforms are are your first name, pretty much. All all of my platforms are my first name. Okay. okay. And platforms. Let's just make sure that the listeners are aware. Are we talking about what Facebook, Instagram, Instagram whatever LinkedIn, else, uh, Twitter. Twitter. Yeah. All yeah. of the above. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn. Uh, those are the main ones that I use right now. Okay. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. And, and my website is Rashawn.com. So. Oh, okay. okay. Well, that's easy enough as well. Okay. <laughs> oh, goodness. Rashawn, thank you so much. We definitely appreciate your time, your energy, and again, keep on doing what you're doing. All right. Thank you so much. You've reached the end of another episode of the Blind Stigma Podcast with your hosts, Stacey Ann Buchanan and Dr. Natasha Williams. Thank you for tuning in. If you're a first-time listener and you like the show, then please subscribe, rate, and review us on all the major podcast platforms. Don't forget to connect with us on social media at The Blind Stigma and join the conversation. Find out more about each guest and help us to change the stigma while taking back our narratives. This podcast is produced by What's Up Toronto and Stacey Ann Buchanan Productions.